Good morning. We are finishing out our sermon series on the first half uh, of the book of Exodus this morning. So after months of walking through book, this book chapter by chapter, we finally come to the end and um, kind of in fitting fashion, as you just heard Amy read, uh, we'll be looking at one of the most famous passages in the book and honestly one of the most famous in the whole Bible. Uh, it's the crossing of the Red Sea, right? This is the climax of these first 14 chapters. We see Israel officially escaping captivity from Egypt. Um, and we're going to see this morning uh, something that I think we've talked about a lot over the past three or four months. But I think it's super important for us to keep centered today. It's this. This passage reminds us that Christ is Lord. That he is Lord over all. So, um, Andrea and I, whenever we get out of this crazy stage of life with, with young kids, we're going to go back to Europe. And we have two places that we want to go to, right? We want to go to either Italy and drink a lot of really nice wine and eat really nice food. Or we want to go to the, the English countryside and fulfill some of my long uh, lost dreams of um, becoming King Arthur one day. <clears throat> um, but the English countryside is really beautiful, right? And, and I think that's maybe, maybe I just played my cards. I'm leaning that way a little bit. Um, but the castles and the rolling hills, all of it just seems so beautiful and, and wonderful. And um, like I said, maybe there's this like little tiny part of me that wants to be a lord of my own castle one day, you know? Um, but I found something out this week online. I want to share it with you, and I think you'll be just as excited as I am, because I'm sure all of you have the same exact secret dreams and passions as me, which is this, you too can become a lord or lady of Great Britain. You can, and I can too. I went online, and you can buy a lordship or a ladyship from England or Scotland right now for like 200 pounds. That's right. And some of them means that you can buy it and you get some like perks at hotel chains. Uh, some of them you can buy, and what happens is you get a 100-square-foot uh, plot of land, which becomes a nature reserve. So look, you're giving back which is beautiful. But yes, you too can become a lord or lady. And I, as I was reading that this week, I, I, I thought it was fascinating because one of the, the, the companies defines a lord or lady as this. You ready? Lord literally means a ruler, a sovereign, or a master. One possessing supreme power, a feudal superior, and the holder of a manor. They put that on their website, selling off fake titles to people on the internet. Uh, just, I found that to be really ironic, right? Because uh, you put that title, that definition on there, and you realize the title you bought, you wield no supreme power, you have no feudal superiority, and you have no manner to lord over. So I hate to tell you this. I guess maybe I lied to you a little. I didn't lie. Okay, maybe misled a little bit. We're, from, we're on, from behind the pulpit and all. If you buy a title online, you aren't actually a lord or lady. But in a shocking turn of events, you know who realized what a true Lord is in this story was the Egyptians. By the end of our story, by the end of these 14 chapters that we've looked at together, the people who knew maybe better than anyone other than Israel what the Lordship of Yahweh meant was the Egyptians. And as the waters of the Red Sea decimated their army, this is what they said. They said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for those guys against us. The Lord, the sovereign, all-powerful, holy Yahweh is fighting against us. So we cannot stand against them. So we're out. They finally got it. 
This was no title purchased. This was no birthright inherited. No, 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 no. The lordship of our God is inherent to who he is. He's sovereign by nature. He's, he's all powerful by nature. He's holy, good, loving, merciful, and just by nature. He is the sovereign, the ultimate ruler and master. Think about all the different ways over the past three or four months we've seen Yahweh as Lord. We saw the providence of the Lord when he protected Moses, when he was saved by the Pharaoh's daughter. We saw the compassion of the Lord when he remembered the covenant he made with Abraham and heard the grumblings of his, or the groanings of his people in slavery. We saw the power of the Lord in the burning bush as the bush uh, burned and burned, but the wood was not burnt. It was self-sustaining. We saw the nature of the Lord when he made himself known to the, Egyptian, or to the Israelites, giving them knowledge of his true name, Yahweh, what all it meant. We saw the provision of the Lord when he gave Moses signs to legitimize him to Israel. We saw the zealous nature of the Lord and the plagues that he sent against Pharaoh to bring his people back. We saw the justice of the Lord in striking down all the firstborn throughout all of Egypt. And we saw the glory of the Lord as he instituted a Passover feast so that his people never forgot what he did for them. And we see the deliverance and salvation of the Lord as he parted the sea for them to walk across on dry land. See, Exodus declares that Yahweh is Lord over and over and over again. And I want us to take away the same thing. The New Testament shows us that God, the same Yahweh here in Exodus, has elevated Jesus Christ to that place of supremacy. Because of what Christ has done on behalf of the world, he was raised in a seat at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we see throughout Hebrews and Colossians, all these beautiful, or even John, we see all these beautiful descriptions of how Jesus Christ is supreme and Lord over all, ruling with God the Father. He is in that place of supremacy as well. In this beautiful dance that is the Trinity. So two, the Red Sea. The Israelites passing through reminds us that Christ is Lord over all and through all as well. So our task as Christians is simple. It's to recognize and submit to that lordship. So we don't recognize and submit to the lordship of a president. We don't recognize and submit to the lordship of a political party or a spouse, a job, a boss, or an addiction. No, we see Christ Jesus as the Lord and the only Lord. And this is so important for us to consider because it's so easy for us to get pulled away from that, right? It's so easy for us to forget that. And what's happened, this is what happens when we do that. When we submit or give lordship to lesser things, we cheapen his lordship. Because we don't actually elevate those things. What we do is we actually bring his lordship in our hearts and our minds down to those lesser things. And then this is what happens. We always allow whatever it is we give lordship to to govern our lives. It's that thing, whatever it is for you, that dictates how you live. And when we allow lesser things to govern our lives, it always ends in disaster for us. Because we were made fundamentally to declare in our hearts, lives, and souls that only Christ Jesus is Lord. And this morning, we're going to see that he's Lord over three things to help recenter us on that fact. So first, he's Lord over creation. Second, he's Lord over salvation. And finally, he's Lord over new creation. So creation, salvation, new creation. 
One thing that's fascinating about this story um, that's stimulated imaginations for centuries, and there's so much art and music that's been inspired from this, um, so much. But it's so intrinsically tied to nature. And we know this, right? God literally manipulates nature to make the sea part. And it even says in the passage, there's the wall of sea on both sides. So, so on one level, we know that. But if you look closer, he manipulates so many different parts of creation. In verse 21, it says that he used a strong wind from the east to blow all night to part the waters. Uh, to create this bridge. And then it says, uh, as the Egyptians pursued them, he was present in a pillar of, fly, of fire and clouds. And this confused them and bogged their chariots down, their source of powers they rode through. So think of all the different elements of creation that God uses for his purposes here. He uses wind, water, earth, fire, and sky, right? He is the Lord over all of these things, all those powers combined. I can't remember what that guy's name was. But God is saying he's the Lord over them all. And in verse 27 says this, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and it returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians, Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, none of them remained. Don't miss this in verse 27. He said that as the morning re- appeared, the chaos of the water returned. The sun god, Ra, was one of the most important gods in all of Egypt. He was believed to rule in all parts of the created world. He was the ruler of creation to the Egyptians, right? Earth, sky, the underworld. He was the god of the sun, order, kings. So for the Egyptians, the sun was their source of power and legitimacy. But as the sun rose and as they start to try to follow the Israelites through the Red Sea, their god is right in front of them. And the true God makes the waters crash all around them. There was no Ra, no God that could lay claim to the created world other than the creator himself. So this story, rife with creation themes, forces us to think about creation itself. And it gives us the trajectory of the entire biblical story in doing so. It's pointing to something bigger. God created us. He created the world to be his. He created them to be good, to be holy, to be perfect for his glory and for us to be our home. And the Exodus shows us that this is a pattern that's going to be repeated throughout all of redemptive history. God's people created for his glory, thrown into exile and bondage to slavery and sin, and God redeeming and delivering them to his kingdom. The Bible as a whole can be summarized as a story of God intervening to bring back his chosen people out of a foreign, hostile place to his chosen land back to Eden and then to more. So what does this mean for us? If God is Lord, if Christ is Lord over creation, what does it mean for us? I think something really important in 2021, where we are this week, it's not an accident that we're here. That's important for us to realize. It's not an accident that you had to live through a pandemic the last year. It's not an accident that you are alive in an incredibly politically divisive and polarized time. It's not an accident that you are alive in a racially diverse and polarized time. God created us to be his people during this time. We're supposed to be here. And there's a tension that we should all feel as Christians. This place is our home, created for us to live in and serve God on mission for his kingdom. But it's always intention that it's not our home forever. 
right? That one day Christ will return and set all things right again. When he destroys sin and death and makes all things new. All things new. That is our hope, right? We can pray for it, ask Christ to come, and cling to it when all seems lost. But we have to sit in that tension. We are here now and we're supposed to be. Our calling is to be agents of God's kingdom on his creation now. He created it, he sustains it, and he's moving and working, and we must too alongside him. But escapism is tempting, right? There are some of you in this congregation that wanted to escape every single day of the past four years while Trump was president. Let's just be honest, you did. You were miserable, and it led you to be apathetic, hostile, judgmental, or obsessive. These are all things that are very unhelpful in your calling as an agent in God's kingdom on earth and his creation right now. You weren't submitting to his lordship in doing that. And there are some of you that are tempted by escapism now that Biden is president. You're afraid of what it means that a democratic president's in control. And you will be tempted to be miserable, apathetic, judgmental, or obsessive. All of these things are unhelpful as your calling as an agent of God's kingdom worker in his good creation. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. It's reductionist to simply say that Jesus is Lord no matter what, so don't, ma- don't worry about what's going on. Injustice still happens. Injustice happened four years ago and it's happening now. I'm saying the opposite. Because Jesus is Lord over creation, there's space for the entire diversity and full counsel of God's people right here to work. There's space for us to be light and darkness, the hands and feet of Christ in this world, no matter where we fall on the political spectrum or sociological spectrum. But I'll tell you what there isn't space for. There's no space to embody and be uh, shaped by culture. The fancy theological term for this is syncretism. It's where culture shapes us more than we shape culture, right? And the way that culture has shaped the church, and I don't mean Hope Chapel, I mean the church at, at wide, the past for a while now, is to divide us, is to pit us against one another. I, can, I can't even listen to a sports podcast without them saying that the biggest problem in America today is our political division, right? So, like, everyone's talking about this. They're talking about how the world is divided. And the church has allowed it to happen to us. But what are we supposed to be as the church? We are supposed to shape culture. We're supposed to show a different way. We are supposed to be the light that Christ is in the world. We're not supposed to look like them. So yes, we call out injustice. It was right for Christians to call out injustice over the past four years. And it will be right for Christians to call out injustice over the next four. If you called out injustice uh, over the past four years but refuse to do it now, you're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And if you called out injustices now but were silent the past four years, you weren't submitting to the Lordship of Christ. That's just the truth. It's as simple as that. We are agents of God's kingdom on mission for the restoration of all things right now in God's creation. So we must be committed to justice, mercy, truth, regardless of who's president or what party's in control. Our mission's the same. And there is space in the church. If we submit to that Lordship, there's space in this church and in the church at wide, for people to be disappointed with the past four years. 
And there's space in this church of what's to come in four years. To be disappointed about it and worried about it. There's space for all of that under the Lordship of Christ. I know I'm talking about this a lot, but it's worth it. You know why? Because we're all talking about it. Let's be honest with one another. We have to talk about the thing that unites and brings us together, and it's the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have a unified goal, which is to bring about God's kingdom. In all of creation. So let's unite under it. It brings us to our second point. The Exodus reminds us that Christ is Lord over all. And that he's Lord over creation. And we're going to see he's Lord over salvation. Verse 30 states this plainly. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So the Exodus, and specifically the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, is the story of redemption and restoration of the Old Testament. It's the Jesus story of the Old Testament. It's the one that they always hearken back to. They talk about it throughout all of the Old Testament. Whenever they need reassurance of the character of God, they think back to the God who brought them out of Egypt. It can't be understated how important the crossing of the Red Sea is to the rest of the Bible. Uh, It's a paradigm for the entire Christian faith in a lot of ways. And we see this uh, in the way the New Testament writers constantly show us that this is a precursor to what we would experience in Jesus Christ. Look at this. This is so cool. In Matthew 2, Matthew quotes Hosea 11 and says this, Out of Egypt I called my son. And he does this to draw this analogy between Christ and the Israelites. And just as God called the Israelites out of Egypt, so too did God call Christ out of Egypt as a boy. So in this way, Israel foreshadows Jesus. Christ is the focal point, then, of Israel's whole existence. If Israel was supposed to be the hands and feet of God himself, Christ is the fulfillment and perfection of that. He was what Israel was always supposed to be. And like him, like Israel, he came out of Egypt. But it's more than that. Christ wasn't just brought out of Egypt. He was the means through which all of us are brought out of proverbial Egypt as well, right? So he's also the new Moses, He's Israel, but also the new Moses leading us out. And Luke 9 shows us this really, really, really cool thing. When Jesus uh, has his transfiguration, he goes up to the mountain to pray. And who visits him? Moses and Elijah. Right? And they talk to him. And they say this. They speak to him about his departure that was coming to bring fulfillment of all things. And it's going to happen at Jerusalem. You want to know what the Greek word for departure is? Exodus. The story of the parting of the Red Sea is pointing to the salvation that was to come in Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. He is the Lord of salvation. So this pattern has been fulfilled in him. But our temptation is this. It's to think it's about me and you. Our temptation is to think that whenever we're suffering, the Exodus promises us that Christ will deliver us. That Christ will save us from whatever is ailing or plaguing us and making our life difficult in this moment. And this isn't necessarily wrong in that Christ sees us in our suffering and he's compassionate and empathetic to us. And sometimes he does intervene and bring us out of our pain and suffering. This happens often. Our God is the great healer. So I want to make that clear. But this is not necessarily what the Exodus is about, is my point. The Exodus is about the new Moses bringing salvation to the world. So rather than applying the Exodus to our lives, our point, my point is understanding that the Exodus has already been applied to us. 
The Exodus is not a pep talk to help us get through hard times or to cling to when we're suffering. No. It's not a pep talk to remind us that God wins our battles for us, though he does sometimes. No, when the New Testament authors talk about the Exodus, they never talk about it as a paradigm for individual suffering, ever. No, it's a better pep talk for us. The Exodus is a reminder that God has already won the war. All our individual battles and sufferings which do matter to God, but they have to be seen in light that the end result and the trajectory of our lives is already finished. It's set. It's not a story about Israel even. It's about the Lordship of Christ who achieved victory over sin and death. It gives us a glimpse of this big battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin and evil. And just as the waters of chaos crashed around and destroyed the enemies of Egypt, so too did the blood of Christ crash down and destroy the kingdom of sin and Satan and death. So no matter what circumstances and hardship you're going through this morning, it's not that you're waiting for God to deliver you from it, but to be reminded that deliverance has already come. The end is sure. The battle is won. Christ is Lord over all. He guarantees our salvation if we put faith in him. Now, this doesn't make whatever you're battling with or struggling with this morning just go away. And and I'm not saying that uh, you're just going to magically feel better. But I do hope it gives you context for the pain and suffering that you're going through right now. And for your own shortcomings, maybe. Or the sin that you can't stop doing or the shame that you constantly feel, or the sense that you're constantly getting beat up by life. Those things don't just magically disappear, but seeing them in light of the salvation of Christ changes things for us. It sets your sight on the battle and the war being won already in Christ. Our destiny is with Him. So He's Lord over creation, He's Lord over salvation. We're going to see his Lord over new creation. Verses 29 through 31, which I read 30 a second ago, but I'm going to read it again. It says this. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall on them on the right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So the people of Israel walk across dry ground through the sea. Seeing a visible representation of power, of the Lord's power on either side of them as they did. And one thing that we've done throughout the series, which I think is really important, is that we've made sure we focus on the character and work of God. Exodus is about God. It's not necessarily about Israel and it's not about us. It's about God and his work. And this has been appropriate. But I want you to think for one second about the Israelites. Imagine 400 years of slavery. Imagine a long-lost son coming back and taking a leadership role over all of them with a message from God himself. Imagine him going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Imagine seeing God do epic and horrifying things on your behalf. And then imagine seeing him literally part a sea for you to walk through to escape your captives, captors. And imagine walking across that ground for freedom to freedom. And then imagine thinking everything's going to be the same. They wouldn't do that. They were walking into something new. They were created and being changed into something new. The reason for the parting of the Red Sea, the reason that it's a paradigm for the entire Christian faith is because it's a picture of what happens to us. When we profess faith in Christ Jesus, we are fundamentally changed. 
We become new, new creations. We're no longer what we used to be. We no longer what we used to be. We're new creations. And so this, for this reason, the, the, the parting of the Red Sea has often been used as an analogy for baptism. Because we've said from this space often, God didn't just want to get Israel out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of Israel, right? So when you walk through the Red Sea, they were leaving Egypt, yes, but Egypt was leaving them. In the same way in baptism, as the water is poured on us, uh, it's like our old former self is washed away. The sin and brokenness is washed away and we rise again as new creations in Christ. But it's also pointing to something else. The new creation that we talked about earlier. That Christ brings when he sets all things right again. There's a promised land that Israel is going to. And in the same way, there's a promised land that we are headed to when Christ returns and makes all things new. And as the waters, like I said, crash down around the Egyptians, so too will Christ return one day and his judgment will crash down on all that sin and death is broken here. But this judgment is a purifying judgment. What is left when the judgment of Christ comes and achieves will be something new and different. He's not coming to destroy only, but to purify and make new again. So that is our hope. The trajectory of the entire biblical story and all of redemptive history is that Christ returns to make new again. Revelation talks about this from a standpoint of a cacophony of voices and faces and ethnicities and tribes, all declaring the glory of the Lord and feasting together. That is the new creation we're heading towards. But it matters for us, too. And it matters for us at Hope Chapel, too. In Colossians 3, Paul talks about our old self and our new self in Christ. But when he talks about our new self in Colossians, he uses a plural noun. Our new self is corporate. This is very, very similar to this idea of becoming a new creation. He says to put to death what is earthly in you, because the wrath of God is coming for that. All that is sinful and earthly and broken, the wrath of God's coming for that. It'll be destroyed one day. So we need to do work with it now. But he says, not where we're headed. This is where we're headed. He says, put on, plural, the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This new self is renewed in the image of God himself. There's no Greek, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, slave. Christ is all and in all. This is a corporate reality. We are made into one people together. That's why there's no Greek or Jew, because, uh, not because those things don't matter, but because in Christ, all of those things come together to make something more beautiful. We make the image of God himself when all of our differences come together and are united in one body with Christ the Lord. That's the difference. My encouragement for you is this. Our new self is a corporate reality. We're made together into something new. So no political identity should come between that. No social ideology should come between that. All other identities pale in comparison to the one identity that we are made into a new creation in Christ as his body. Plural, with one another. 
So you have an opportunity this morning. Are you willing to do the hard work of being one of many? Of embracing one another? Because Christ has made us united under him. We are to be a picture. The body of Christ is to be a picture of the unified body that we will see one day when Christ returns to set all things right again in his new creation. Are we that picture? And this doesn't mean we don't call out sin in one another. We do. That's part of our identity. This doesn't mean we don't call out for justice in one another and for the world. Of course we do. That's part of our new identity in Christ. But we do it together. Because Christ has made us into something new. And he is Lord over that. thought about buying one of those lord or ladyships it would be really dramatic and like um performative to tell you i bought one but it was like really expensive i wouldn't do that especially because like especially if it's like empty right like it's not an actual lord or ladyship title i i I wouldn't do it because it doesn't really matter but the lordship of christ in all things does matter the fact that he's lord of creation matters for us right now The fact that he's Lord of salvation matters for us right now. The fact that he's Lord of the new creation, us, and the new creation coming matters right now. It will, if we let him govern our lives, it will change the way we live. It will change the way we move towards one another. And it will change the way we understand grace and goodness and truth of God our Father. Through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.